Amen. What a good thing it is to live, sing love songs to the Lord. Amen. He's been faithful. His goodness runs after us. Amen. Well, it's been good to worship in song. Thank you for leading us in these songs. And children, you get to continue your worship in the children's building. So first through sixth graders, you can go to children's worship with Pastor Susan right here uh, to my left and, and be able to join in that. Amen. Well, it's good to, uh, to be with you today. I just got back last night from a trip to Austin. Our, our oldest, our youngest rather, son, his name's Stephen. He's a senior at nursing school, University of Texas in Austin. And, uh, and he's about to graduate in December, Lord willing. Uh, and this summer he's been applying for jobs and he's particularly interested in being a nurse technician at, uh, at a hospital that has a psychiatric unit and work there. And as he's applied and he's gotten job offers, one of the places said, we really, really like you because we think of you as a gentle giant. You know, my son is 6'3", I'm 6'1", so he's taller than me, he's wider than me. When he goes to fast food places in Austin, people think he's a football player for Texas. And they uh, said, so you're big, and so you kind of command respect in, our, in a psych unit, but you have a big heart, and we can tell that you're gentle. And that's true, my son can be very gentle as he extends care to people. Uh, he can care for children, for the elderly, although he's big in size. A couple of Sundays ago, about 3.45 in the morning though, we got a text from him uh, because he found himself in a difficult situation in the apartment complex that, that he has been living in. There had been a, a lot of commotion, there was noise. There was a student, <clears throat> there was a fraternity house that's next door to their apartment complex and, um, and there was something going on over there. And then one of the students, about the size of my son, was going around breaking windows in apartments and busting doors open and trying to go into apartments. And as my son overheard what was going on, he looked out the window and he said, it's better for me to leave the property before something happens. And so uh, he got his backpack and he opened his door. And when he opened his door, this intruder was standing right in front of him. And, uh, and, and then when he saw my son open the door, he charged at my son to force himself into his apartment. Well, my son, with a rush of adrenaline, was able to shove him back out of his apartment and pushed him so hard that the guy left. And uh, the gentle giant became a fearful foe there for a moment. And I want you to know that my son can be a very caring individual, but if he has to do with protecting his life or his apartment or his family, he's gonna step up to the challenge. That's not a contradiction. You can be a gentle person and you can be loving, but there's a moment when you have to be strong and you have to be firm and you have to defend. When Paul was writing to Titus and he was giving him the qualifications for elders, he said that elders should be people who uh, are hospitable, who are not violent, who are not quick-tempered, and, and that's true, spiritual leaders, pastors, deacons, shouldn't be like that. They should be gentle. They should be welcoming. They should be hospitable. But there comes a time 
when these gentle pastors, these gentle shepherds, these gentle spiritual leaders need to confront and they need to correct and sometimes need to take out people who will hurt the work of God. So as we see in our text today in this series that we're calling Boot Camp in the letter to Titus, uh, we come to a message that I've entitled Dishonorable Discharge. And I would like for us to pick up our reading right where we left off in chapter one of Titus. We have one more portion to cover there before we go to chapter two next Sunday. In verse 10 of that first chapter, God's word says, for there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Wow, what a passage. What a contrast between this strong admonition and the qualifications for spiritual leaders that Paul has given just in the paragraph before that. We talked about that last Sunday. And uh, so we have Crete. We have a map of Crete that you can see is right in the Mediterranean, sort of to the northwest. You see Greece. To the northeast, you see Galatia. To the south, you see Africa. Uh, and straight to the east, you see the Holy Land. And Crete is this island right there in the Mediterranean. And there were all kinds of young churches spread out through uh, this island. And they were vulnerable because they were young and they lacked leadership. That's why it was important to appoint elders to, in these churches. But they also had been victims of attacks by troublemakers. They, they had been infiltrated, some of them, by false teachers. And so uh, we, Paul is going to give instructions on how to deal with this. You know, we, we talk about honorable discharge in the army, but sometimes there needs to be a dishonorable discharge. Sometimes in church, there needs to be uh, an action taken against those that would hurt it. Sometimes there is a need for confrontation and for discipline. In our text, Paul gives instructions to Titus and implicitly to the elders that he's going to appoint for dealing with what I consider three types of situations in the church. In contrast to, to the qualified leaders that he talks about in the portion before, now he talks about troublemakers and misguided believers and fake Christians. So Titus, the spiritual leaders, the elders were supposed to do something about these types of situations. And the first type of situation, uh, they're supposed to confront troublemakers. They, these were people who were causing problems the work of the gospel in Crete. And Paul has colorful language to describe them. He can be very nice sometimes. 
He can say very nice things, but in this case, he, he has some strong words to describe these people. They're rebellious. They're full of meaningless talk and deception. Paul doesn't sugarcoat it. You can see, you can sense the zeal of Paul for the churches in Crete. This is protector Paul. This is a Paul that, that cares about his churches uh, in Crete. I get to work with one of the members of our church. His name is Ether Ibarra. In fact, he'll be preaching the Spanish service today. But Ether is a director for the Rio Grande Valley Baptist Association. That's an association of Baptist churches in the valley. And he does a lot of things, but one of the things that he gets to do is he gets to work with pastorless churches. We have a lot of small congregations in the valley who do not have a pastor and they struggle to get a pastor. And they're vulnerable. There are, there are guys who will come into those churches who are eager to have a leader and they will say, well, I can be your pastor. And sometimes they, they have other motives. Sometimes they bring a different kind of doctrine. Sometimes they have talked churches into signing their property deed over to them. And they're amassing real estate. And so uh, Ether gets to go to those pastorless churches and help them, protect them from those who would harm them. And sometimes you have to be firm. Sometimes you need to call an attorney. Sometimes you need to take legal action. Sometimes you need to just tell people the truth. We don't have much detail about uh, these troublemakers that Paul writes to Titus about, but we do know at least seven things about them. I just mentioned them rather quickly. They were rebellious. That means they don't submit to authority. They, they're always bucking everything. They were babblers. That means they were just full of meaningless talk. They talked and talked and talked and had no substance to it. Sounds like social media. They were deceivers. They were working against the truth. Some of them, not all of them, but some of them were Judaizers. They, they say they were of the circumcision group. Now, what does that mean? It means that these were people who wanted to impose Judaism on Gentile Christians. That means they said, look, you're not a real Christian until you're a real Jew. You, baptism is not enough. You need to get circumcised and you need to observe our food laws and you need to observe our ceremonies and our rituals for you to be a real Christian. Those are Judaizers. That's the circumcision group that Paul is saying. Some of them, some of these troublemakers were, were Judaizers. They were disruptive. They were upsetting whole households. And, and remember the church met in, in houses. There were house churches. So they were disrupting entire congregations. And they were greedy. They, they were teaching the wrong thing for financial gain. Now, if you do the wrong thing for the right motive, it's still wrong. If you do the right thing for the wrong motive, it's still wrong. Now, if you do the wrong thing with the wrong motive, it's doubly wrong. And these people, that's what they were doing. And then... Paul says something astounding, something that kind of is really shocking. He says, they fit the Cretan stereotype. He says, one of your own prophets, you guys said this about yourselves, that Cretans are liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Wow. 
And Paul says, and some of you are living up to your stereotype. You know, people have stereotypes about places and people. I remember the first time that I went to Europe on a mission trip and I met the people in the churches there and they said, where are you from? And I said, I'm from Texas. I said, really? We thought that all Texans were cowboys with hats and boots and guns. And I said, well, I left my hat and boots at home. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, you know, and people have stereotypes about Aggies. There's a lot of jokes about Aggies, right? And then there's all the, <laughs> there's an Aggie once. And, and then there's all those weird people that live in Austin, right? And, and then people have stereotypes about Californians and the liberal West Coast and the Northeast and the Midwest and the accents and and, and here there was a stereotype about Cretans and, and the stereotypes that they were liars and evil brutes and lazy gluttons. They, were, they, they, they didn't stay busy with constructive things that went around spreading rumors and lies. And, and, and when I read this lazy gluttons part, it reminded me of, of the cat that is watching the Olympics and criticizing the athletes, right? It's, it's probably what we do on the couch, right? Uh, or, or the other cat that says, I'm not lazy. I'm just waiting for inspiration to hit me, you know? Uh, some people think that's cute. And then there's the energy saving mode cat, right? I'm not lazy, I'm just in energy saving mode. Well, there's, there's really a sense of humor when you read this from Paul, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. But the reality is that this was a serious problem. That these people were hurting the church, the gospel work in Crete. And so, what are Titus and elders supposed to do about this? Are they supposed to say, well, you know, it's a free country. You know, we're a welcoming church. Our doors are open to everybody. So if people come and they're Judaizers or if they're lazy or if they're liars or if they're rebellious, everybody's welcome here. We're not going to do anything about it. And Paul says, no way. That's not, that's not an option. You need to confront these troublemakers. In fact, he says, they must be silenced. There's a version that says, whose mouths must be stopped. Yet another paraphrase says, they've got to be shut up. That's pretty strong. You know, I, I, I think sometimes that's what we need to do. One of the great things about our church is, is that uh, we get to see expressions of our church in huddles and prayer groups all over the place. And, and we always hear good things about how encouraging that is and how people are growing. But once in a while, once in a while, uh, a huddle or a prayer group will, will get off course and they'll become a gossip place or they'll become a, a whining place and they begin to criticize everything. And so I've had people that come and said, Pastor, I think my huddle or my prayer group or, or whatever the thing is, is they've lost their way. They're, they're spending more time gossiping. They're spending more time complaining that they are praying and they said, I think I'm going to confront the leader and say, that's not right, that we need to change that or we need to stop meeting. And I've told them that's exactly what you need to do. It's very biblical. Confront, confront that. It's hard for us to, to think of that because we, we come from a culture that's individualistic. We, we, we value the individual rights sometimes at the expense of the well-being of the community. We, we live in a consumerist world where, where we think the customer is right and everybody has a right to, to demand what they want and, 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 and what they would like. But the church, 
It's not an individualistic society. The church is not a, a retail place. The church is a community of believers that exist to glorify God, to protect the truth, and to protect one another from those that would hurt the church. Troublemakers are going to be part of church life. It's been so for 2,000 years. So let's just, let's just come to terms with that. People who disrupt God's work. It doesn't mean that everybody you disagree with is a troublemaker. Just because you don't, you don't like someone uh, makes them a troublemaker. But there are those, like Paul describes here, who have these characteristics that need to be confronted. Secondly, Paul says sometimes you need to correct believers. In the mess created by the troublemakers, there would be some confused believers. Christians who are not well discipled and, and who, who are deceived by the troublemakers. While the troublemakers had to be silenced, the believers who had been affected by them must be corrected. The word here is rebuke them sharply. Wake them up. Shake them up. Say, look, you, you were deceived. Look, you need to get back on track. There needs to be intentionality and urgency. Why? Paul says it in the latter part of verse 13. So that they will be sound in the faith and pay no attention to Jewish myths and to the merely human command of those who reject the truth. What's the reason that Paul wants these people to be corrected? It's not a power trip. It's not that Paul says, look, I'm angry at you because you're, you're doing something I don't like. Paul is saying, I want those believers to be restored. It's a redemptive step of restoration. Rebuke them so they can be restored. That's not an easy thing to do. Correcting believers is not fun. Don't ask me how I know. Sometimes I have to confront people who are in the wrong. And most people who are wrong, when they're confronted, they don't like it. They get upset. They blame everybody else. They get angry at the pastor. They get angry at the church. But sometimes people need to be corrected. Sometimes they need to be told that they're wrong. Why? Because we love them. You know, if somebody, if a believer is doing the wrong thing and we don't care, then we just let them. But if we love them, then we correct them. For your own sake, brother, for the sake of your marriage, for the sake of your family, for the sake of, of the witness of the church, what you're doing is not right and you need to change. In the case of the churches in Crete, the danger was that believers would pay attention to Jewish myths or human commands. You say, what's a Jewish myth? Jewish myth is probably some kind of embellishment of, of Jewish scriptures that had something added to it to, to sort of uh, protect the scriptures, but, but make sure that, that, that you kept the scriptures, but it was a human command. It, it, it's this thing where people think that the Bible is not enough, where people are looking for that extra piece of information. We still have people like that. Hey, there, there, there's some truth that you don't know about. There's this inner circle that, that has a corner on the truth. Everybody else is, is, is being deceived. Everybody else is going the wrong way, but we have a corner on the truth. We have some secret knowledge that's going to help us. That's what a Jewish myth was. And, and it was trying to teach the secret conspiracy about the world and about everyone else. And if you can just have this inside information, 
as if the Bible is not enough. That's why Paul says those are our Jewish myths. You know, social media is full of debates. If you, if you, if you enter, people argue about social issues. They argue about political agendas. They argue about race. And there is a place for debate. There is a time and place to, to talk about what you feel is right. But here's the danger. Our danger is not maybe Jewish myths, but, but our danger is to confuse our issue with the gospel. Sometimes we get so zealous about our issue that we think it's the gospel. Or the other danger is that we spend more time debating an issue that we spend sharing the gospel. And offending people with your side of the issue is not going to make them part of the kingdom of God. The merely human commands that Paul talks about to is added truth to the gospel. Paul maintained, look, the gospel is simple. God became man in the person of Jesus. He went to the cross and he died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day. He ascended to heaven and, and he's Lord of lords and King of kings. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the gospel. Simple, but powerful. Let me just say that there's a lot of things going on in the evangelical world today that have nothing to do with the gospel. That added things to the gospel. Let me just say that there are a lot of things going on in the name of Christ that have nothing to do with the spirit of Christ. And our responsibility is to correct that, to get back on track. And then third and final, there's a need to cut off fake leaders. While believers needed to be corrected, there are also those who are not real believers. They're fake. They're religious. But they don't know Christ. Almost as a reference back to the qualifications for elders, Paul refers to the inner person as the key to determine a true believer. He says in verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. Apparently, these false teachers were uh, as they were causing trouble in the Cretan churches, they were adding requirements to the gospel. Either they were adding rules or they were adding rituals. It was an effort to say, you need more knowledge. You need to become more holy. If you, if you really want to be holy, you need to follow these rituals. If you really want God to accept you, you, you need to climb this ladder of spiritual holiness. It's interesting to know that what Paul is fighting against here is not licentious teaching. In other words, this is not about teachers who are teaching immorality necessarily. This is not about liberal people. This is about ultra traditional conservative religious folks who are imposing things on the gospel. And Paul says, look, it's not the laws or the rituals that make someone pure. Christ makes the heart pure. And when Christ has made your heart pure, out of the inner person, purity will flow. On the other hand, if someone has not been made pure, 
If someone's heart has not been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no ritual, there is no rule that you can follow that will make you pure. It has to start in the heart. Sometimes uh, when people want to get baptized, I said, that's great. We'd love to baptize you. And I said, why do you want to get baptized? And people said, because that day when I get baptized, all my sins will get washed away. Because that day when, when I get baptized, I want to become a new person. And I said, look, your sins get washed away when Christ comes in your heart. You, you become a new person when Christ enters your heart. Baptism is a outward expression of what already happened in your heart. There is nothing magical about that water. It's not holy water. It doesn't purify. It is a symbol of the purification that Christ does in our hearts. If you, if you get someone whose heart has not been redeemed by Christ going through the baptistry, all you've done is wet another sinner. It doesn't change them. And Paul says that it doesn't matter how many rituals or rules or religious things you want to do. If your heart hasn't been changed, then you're still not pure. We have a phrase in English, right, that when we're, when we're talking about something that, that is clean and that is good and someone kind of giggles or laughs or, or, or thinks something different, we turn to them and say, get your mind out of the gutter. Don't we say that? What we're saying is what I'm... What was just said was something clean, but something in your mind made it unclean. And that's what Paul is saying. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the impure, nothing is pure because their consciences, their minds are corrupt. And so Paul says that those who try to gain holiness by special knowledge, by rules, by rituals, are people who do not believe because they don't think what Christ did on the cross is enough. They are relying on their own efforts they're relying on their own religious demands. So uh, Paul says in verse 16, they claim to know God, but their actions, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Wow. Wow. Unfit, disqualified. They need to be discharged. The evidence of true faith in Christ will show up in both character and behavior. Your character, your heart will become pure and then your behavior will be an outflow of that. Sometimes we say a, a, a disciple is about character and competence. It's about the character of Christ and the competence of Christ. They go together. The contrast here is, is between uh, people like that and those in the Cretan churches whose hearts were not purified and their actions gave evidence of the same. Paul says their actions show who they are. Now, those who have not been saved um, will give evidence of, of their lack of redemption in one of two ways. Some people would live in immorality and a sinful lifestyle because they don't have the Holy Spirit. And that's evident. We are very much aware of that group. But there's another group who's not saved, who are churchgoers and religious people. They, they go to church on Sundays and they carry their Bible and they give and, and they serve, but they haven't been redeemed. Their heart is not pure yet. And, and the difference between them and a real Christian is the heart. Paul says in another place that the fruit of the Spirit it's love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness.
gentleness, goodness, self-control. That's how you know. That's how you know a real Christian. The fruit of the Spirit will show. Now you can have someone who's religious, who goes to church, who, who keeps all the rules, who, who talks the, the talk, talks the language, but you'll know they're not a true Christian because they don't have the fruit of the Spirit. What comes out is anger and bitterness and judgment and, and impatience. And you know the Spirit of Christ is not living in that heart. At least they're not in control of that heart. And Paul says you need to acknowledge that. You need to recognize that. Sometimes people need to be confronted. Sometimes they need to be corrected. Sometimes they just need to be taken out of leadership when they're unrepentant. That's what Paul is addressing here. Fake Christians need to be cut off leadership roles while true repentant believers can be welcomed into the fellowship and God will qualify them. You know, it's not that some of us are better than others. That's not it. I hope you don't get that. All of us are sinners. The difference is when you bow your knee at the cross and you repent, then God's grace takes you and makes you something new. But when you're not willing to admit that, when, you're, when you want to, to show how much you know and how much you can do instead of surrendering to Christ, then you're going against the gospel. That's what the difference is. Titus will need wisdom to deal with the different segments of the church. And we need wisdom too. I heard the other day someone say, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And, and I kind of experienced that the other day. There, there was a kitchen faucet at my house that was dripping slowly. And I said, I'm not gonna call the plumber. I don't, I'm not gonna spend that money. I have tools. And I pulled out my toolbox and I had myself a nice pair of pliers. And so what is it that a man cannot do with a good pair of pliers? So I began to intervene while my, wa my wife watched with fear and trembling. And I managed somehow to ruin the entire faucet. I stripped the thread. I ruined the part and we didn't have water for a couple of days because I figured I could still fix it. Eventually I had to call the plumber and it cost me double as much as it would have cost me if I called him the first time. Sometimes we can make a mess of things when we use the wrong tool at the wrong time. The passage that Paul gives us today and that the Lord gives us today is not so that we will always be on a witch hunt trying to see who we can confront and who we can judge and who we can fire from church. That's not what it's about. There, it's just about acknowledging. Sometimes we need to do that. But all the time, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. All the time, we need to make the gospel the main thing. All the time, we need to love sinners. And we need to work for the redemption. Sometimes there will be troublemakers. Sometimes we'll have to do some confronting and correcting. And we need to be ready for that. But let's not use pliers all the time for everything or we might ruin what God is doing. When we love God's church, we will, seem to, we will seek to protect it and harm it. It's okay to be a gentle giant sometimes and then sometimes to be a fearful foe when it comes to protecting God's church. When we want to see health in the church, we need to confront troublemakers, correct believers, 
and cut off unqualified leaders. Would you stand with me as you think about what it is that you can do to make sure that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is kept, protected. How you could pray, maybe. Maybe prayer is what you need to do. Maybe you just need to be aware so that when something doesn't line up, you, you can say, okay, that's what the Bible was talking about. Maybe sometimes you just need to be prepared to speak truth in love in a particular situation. Whatever God is calling you to do, I hope you will. Maybe you need to trust Christ for the first time today or follow him in believer's baptism. All of us need to prepare our hearts for communion this morning. So let's bow our heads as we pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for God's word and for your spirit. We thank you for the way you've redeemed us and made us new people. And Father, thank you that you give us a warning that there are people out there who will want to do harm to your church. Help us to be alert and ready. Help us to defend what needs to be defended. To love and hug when we need to love and hug. And to confront and discipline when that's what we need to do. Now prepare our hearts to have communion and think about what you did on our behalf. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing, prepare your heart for communion.